Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm Nathan Rubin. I'm joined today by Editor-in-Chief Jordan Valerie. How are you doing today, Jordan? Endlessly exhausted by the news cycle, but that's nothing new, really. Yeah, I agree. We're going we're gonna to get to that in a little bit. Before we jump into the news, a quick announcement on the Millennial Politics front. We are pivoting and we're gonna be focusing strictly on progressive candidates and organizations for 2018 and beyond. Take a look, read our full strategic plan that's posted on our website. And a little bit later, you'll be hearing from the co-founder of political startup Run For Something, Ross Morales Rocchetto. And remember to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Millen Politics, and subscribe to our newsletter on our website and our podcast in the iTunes and Google Play Store. All right. Let's get started with a news recap and some reactions. Jordan, you want to take this away and give us the news of the week? Yeah, sure. So the first big thing is that Democrats have reached a deal with Trump on both the debt ceiling and DACA. Donald Trump first reached a deal with Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer that provided hurricane aid money increased the debt ceiling, and funded the government. This has already passed Congress. It's good that all of these things have happened, and they are bipartisan goals, but Republicans are outraged that Donald Trump had this deal with Democrats, not only because it betrays the deeply partisan strategy that Republicans have taken on, but because he explicitly blamed the GOP, in particular Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan, for failing to get these things done on their own. Then, just days later, Trump met again with Pelosi and Schumer to discuss DACA, which last week he announced that he will be repealing. Apparently now, Donald Trump supports Dreamers in exchange for funding for his wall, which may be a fence now, it's unclear. Pelosi and Schumer announced that they have reached a deal to defend Dreamers and ensure that they can stay without fear of deportation, but immediately the White House disputed that claim. Right now, it's really unclear as to what exactly is happening, but it does seem that there is some sort of deal being reached with the president and Democratic leaders to protect Dreamers. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think there's a lot that we can dive into here. I mean, first and foremost, I think it's good that Donald Trump is at least giving the appearance of working with Democratic leadership. I think on the debt ceiling deal, this is arguably better for Democrats than it is for Republicans. And I'm not sure Trump knew that when he agreed to it at first, but he definitely received a lot of positive press coverage for his deal with Chuck and Nancy, as he said. I think this DACA piece is going to be a little more problematic. When you look at how the conservative press reacted, they really were up in arms. Twitter was, I guess, flooded with people burning their MAGA hats. Ann Coulter pretty much went nuts, even more so than she already is, and basically saying she got played. And if you recall, Ann Coulter wrote a book called In Trump We Trust. So I think when Donald Trump saw the reaction from his base, he really dialed it back. And that, I think, led to the reaction where Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer put out a statement saying that they've reached an agreement on DACA. And then all of a sudden you have an about face by Donald Trump saying, well, we're going to try to work border funding in there and try to get a wall or a fence. It's a developing story and it will play out in time. But it was encouraging to see Donald Trump explicitly defend Dreamers on Twitter. The next big story is with healthcare. There's a lot going on right now. On Wednesday, Bernie Sanders finally released his Medicare for All bill. 
it has much more support than a lot of folks thought going in. Right now, a third of Democratic senators support it, including a bunch of presidential hopefuls as well as speculative candidates like Cory Booker, Al Franken, Kirsten Gillibrand, Kamala Harris, and Elizabeth Warren. Some are calling it a sort of litmus test for 2020 candidates, and that seems to be accurate right now. Alternatively, Senator Chris Murphy from Connecticut is offering a plan that he describes as the best pathway to single payer. It's similar to the public option, which ironically was shot down largely due to his predecessor, Senator Joe Lieberman. Senator Murphy's plan would allow everyone to buy into Medicare, which would presumably overtake the private market and sort of naturally develop into single payer. This definitely seems more practical, but still with a Republican Congress, it's doubtful that either of these plans will pass. And then Republicans are still trying one last push at repealing Obamacare, this time the bill being introduced by Senators Lindsey Graham and Bill Cassidy. They're still planning on using the partisan budget reconciliation process, which only requires a simple majority. And this is a real rush because it expires at the end of September. This was supposed to be kind of a more moderate bill, but it's essentially just as extreme as any of the other plans. Now, it's unclear if this bill can pass. Everything's kind of up in the air. So I think there are two very different visions for healthcare introduced into both houses right now. Obviously, you have the Graham-Cassidy bill, which is the Republican version of repeal and replace again. And it seems pretty terrible from everything that we've read. But then you also have Bernie Sanders' plan and the Medicare for All or Chris Murphy's, for example. Could you talk a little bit about why Democrats might be resistant to Bernie Sanders' plan? It only has a third of the Democratic senators in the Senate, which is a lot. Don't get me wrong. 16 co-sponsors is a lot. But what about the other ones? Why, why would they be resistant to this? Basically, the biggest thing is that Bernie Sanders hasn't really put a proposal out for how this is funded. And this is, regardless of whether you support it or not, a wildly expensive plan. So some folks have been saying that this plan actually hurts the prospects for single payer because of how unrealistic it is. The only way to really fund this is massive tax increases, which essentially no one likes. And then there's the more moderate senators who simply aren't on board with Medicare for All yet. But it seems like it's becoming more and more popular, even if this isn't necessarily the practical option. Isn't there something to be said, though, for Democrats being the minority, they're out of power, everyone's asking them to put forth a vision for the country that outlines where do we want to be in 5, 10, 20 years? What kind of society do we want to have? What values are important to us? I can understand folks saying this isn't realistic, it's never going to pass, but isn't there something to be said for putting forth something that's aspirational, especially at this time in our country? Yeah, for sure. And I think it's really important going into the 2018 elections, the better deal that Democratic leaders put forth is very tame. I'm not sure it excited anyone. It certainly didn't excite me. It didn't have civil rights. It really went halfway on the economic populist policies of the Bernie Sanders wing of the party. So this is a really good promise going into the midterms and going into 2020 even if it's not practical. And this bill is largely symbolic. I don't think anyone legitimately thinks it can pass right now. Maybe it won't even be able to pass if Democrats win back the House. But it does send a clear message about what the party stands for and what, what most of the major 2020 candidates stand for as well. Agreed. Awesome. 
So turning over to the Graham Cassidy bill here, we have some quick hit stats that we think will help illuminate and get people to understand. The CBO has not yet scored it, but it's one of those bills that need to be passed by the end of September in order for it to be a part of the reconciliation process. So quick hit estimates that have evaluated the bill say that 32 million people will lose coverage within 10 years. That's terrible. Ends the Medicaid expansion in healthcare for 11 million low-income adults. It ends all subsidies for the Obamacare ACA exchanges, and it's replaced by a smaller and declining block grant. And the block grant doesn't have to be spent on the same populations. If this were to pass, these senators think it's better to give money to the state governments who will determine how to best spend that money on their own populations. And we've seen that people with pre-existing conditions, low-income seniors, children, and people with disabilities they don't get that money. So overall, I would say the numbers show that this is not a good bill. So what can we do as active citizens to make sure that our voices are heard and we can do everything we can to prevent this from even coming to the floor? Indivisible is offering a guide to targeting specific senators to tell them not to pass this bill. Right now, there's not much more we can do than protest and make our voices heard, but that's really important. And ultimately, the way the bill got killed before was just grassroots activists telling their representatives that they can't take away our health care. And that's what we have to do again here. Awesome. Thanks, Jordan. All right, we're going to try something new here. We're going to do a quick around the world segment, bringing you news that you may have heard or you may not have. So really quickly, while we are witnessing earthquakes and hurricanes here, folks on the other side of the world are witnessing what some are calling a textbook case of genocide there. In Myanmar, the government appears to be systematically killing Rohingya Muslims, making no distinction between men, women, and children. And while this is happening, the Trump administration has so far remained quiet on the issue. Next, the conservative government in Iceland collapsed after it came to light that the prime minister was pardoning child sex abusers, and the conservative party in the government actually knew about it. They have a parliamentary system over there, and the center-left party that formed the coalition government resigned the same day they found out about the scandal. The prime minister has since called a snap election to try and reform the coalition. This is a developing story, and time will tell how things shake out. Turning to North Korea, another missile was launched over Japan this week as tensions continually simmer. Tough talk from the U.S. has led the United Nations to impose even greater sanctions on the totalitarian regime as all parties pull out the remaining stops to prevent war. And finally, turning back to our domestic focus here in the United States, coming up right after this, we've got a great interview with the activist, political operative, and co-founder of Run For Something, Ross morales Riquetto. Stick around. It's a good interview. On the pod today, we're joined by the co-founder of Run For Something, Ross morales Raquetto. Hey, Ross, how are you doing today? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Thanks so much for being here. I'm not sure if you knew this, but we actually featured Run For Something on our website shortly after you guys launched, and we're really excited to have you on the podcast today. To give our listeners a quick overview, at its most basic, Run For Something recruits, trains, and supports people running for elected office. Can you tell us a little bit more about the backstory behind launching this? Totally. So Amanda and I knew each other during the 2016 election cycle. 
She and my wife both worked for the Hillary Clinton campaign. We hung out socially a number of times. After the election, she had been talking to some people about potentially starting a candidate recruitment organization for millennial candidates. And I, in the past, have done a ton of work around candidate recruitment and support. And so my wife actually got us connected to make sure that we we talked about it and sort of one thing led to another and we decided to go in together and try to launch an organization. And, you know, when we first launched on inauguration day in January, we thought maybe 100 candidates would sign up to run for office in the first year. And in the first weekend, we had over a thousand sign up. So, wow. yeah, we misjudged a little bit the hunger that was out there after Trump's election. But since then, we've built an organization that's now working with about 11,000 candidates from across the country. We've made almost 80 individual endorsements of candidates in 19 states, and we're running a program in Virginia right now where we'll be giving candidates money directly. So yeah, we've been really busy since we launched now, I guess what's been about eight and a half months ago. You have 11,000 candidates that, or folks who have signed up, they're not yet candidates. You may have misjudged a little bit on the launch. What are some of the other hurdles that you've found that have come with kind of trying to do candidate recruitment? Honestly, one of the things that we hear from candidates, especially since we only work with folks 40 and below and we only do down ballot offices, so nothing federal, so we don't do any uh, Congress, like Senate, that type of stuff. And we don't do any statewide offices like governor, lieutenant governor, et cetera. We specifically focus on state legislative, municipal, those types of races. So one thing that we've heard from a number of candidates as you know we've started is that by simply existing, we've actually inspired a number of people to run who didn't think that they could run otherwise. We've had a number of people say, I didn't realize that someone at my age could run for office. The fact that like you're out there helping candidates has meant that like I feel has made me more confident in my own abilities to affect change in my community. And so I think one of the biggest barriers to candidate recruitment always has been a like a mental barrier, which is just that a lot of really good folks don't necessarily believe that they can or should run for office. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think something, speaking as a millennial, one of the things that I know of personally and just through my network is that a lot of folks have student loans. They don't have access to networks of big donors. They're concerned about the opportunity cost of taking time off their job to run for office. All of those, I think, play a major role in preventing someone from run for office. How, how does Run for Something as an organization combat that? I mean, I guess people come to you initially, but do you do work up front to try to help get these guys along? Yeah, I mean, we do a lot of work with candidates as they're sort of like figuring out whether they should even run, what offices they should run for, that type of stuff. I mean, the barriers that you listed are totally real. They're also some of the same barriers that women and people of color face running for office more broadly. And so like, we're not the first people to think about it or tackle the issue. What I will say is that one of the reasons why 
running for local office is so important and one of the reasons why it's so integral to the model is the fact that when you're running for something at the local level in most cases although not all you have the ability to overcome a number of those barriers in a way where if you are starting off running for Congress, you may not be able to. And so when you run for a local office, you know, if you're in like a small or medium sized city, you might have a few thousand voters that are sort of like the ones that typically vote that you need to go out and talk to, as opposed to if you're running for Congress, you might have tens of thousands of voters that you need to go talk to. And in order to communicate with that many voters, you need resources to do it. And so one of the reasons why local office is really interesting and important and something that especially a lot of younger folks should think about is that you have a much better chance of actually being able to win that office, even though there's a number of institutional and structural barriers that might keep you from being able to raise money or like gather support from like local institutions, that kind of stuff. So in the instance of down-ballot local races, what are the most common elected positions that you're finding you're channeling folks to run for? Is it city council? Is it some other local elected position? Sure. It, it In a lot of cases, it completely depends on sort of like the state, city council, school board, state legislature. We have folks running for like community college board. We have people running for their local democratic central committee, a lot of really local, like hyper local offices. And you know, that goes all the way up to we have endorsed at least one candidate who's running for mayor of like a medium sized city. It goes all the way up. You mentioned earlier that you have around 80 endorsed candidates. These are folks that are working with you to boost their campaign, I I guess you could say. What kind of support does Run for Something actually provide? Sure. So for our candidates in Virginia, we're actually providing them pro bono coaching and guidance. We're also giving them money directly. So in the primary, we gave our slate of candidates money in the general election, which is coming up in November. We'll be giving another chunk of money directly to our candidates. For folks who are not in Virginia, and and specifically we're focused on Virginia right now because it's legislative election that's happening in an off-cycle year, and we wanted to test our model of fundraising, doing a lot of grassroots fundraising for our candidates in Virginia, specifically sending out emails to our supporters and volunteers, etc., try to raise money for those folks. For the other folks in other states, we're doing a couple of different things. One, we're also providing similar types of coaching and mentorship for them. We're giving them access to groups of individuals who are interested in providing support in some way for candidates. So whether it's building websites, designing logos, that kind of stuff, we're giving our candidates access to those things. We also do local and national press on their behalf. When we launched, we sent a national press release we talked to a number of like national outlets about it, and we also reached out to local reporters in their areas to let them know that we had endorsed. The other thing we do is we feature them via social media. We do a number of like series on our Facebook and Twitter pages about some of the folks that we've endorsed that are running. And then the last thing that we do is we work with some of our progressive and democratic partner organizations to make them aware of the candidates we've endorsed and encourage them where it makes sense to join us for endorsement. 
So it sounds like it's pretty soup to nuts. I mean, if someone, if you endorse someone, you're going to do everything you can to help them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's totally what we do. So now I want to dive a little bit deeper into the actual screening and selection process. I read on the strategic plan that you guys originally hoped to have some sort of interview process with everyone who puts their name in. I imagine with 11,000 candidates, that's relatively difficult to do. So can you just describe for our listeners, say someone's interested in putting their name in the in the hat to actually run for something? What is the process like for them to get contacted by you and, and move through your screen? Totally. Process? So the, I mean, the first step would be you'd go to our, I'll just like a normal candidate, sort of like the process they'd go through. You'd go to our website, which is uh, www.runforsomething.net you would sign up as a candidate fill out the form and then basically what would happen is you get an email back once you filled out the form that would give you a number of days and times for a conference call and so what we do with each of our candidates that sort of like come in through our pro- that's part of the screening process is we do uh, a once or twice a week conference call with them to explain what run for something does what we don't do and talk to them a little bit more about wanting what running for office entails and from there we put them into a process to have a one-on-one a phone one-on-one with a volunteer and so that volunteer has a script a series of things that they're asking the candidates is an opportunity for us to collect more information on them it's also an opportunity for the candidates to talk to like folks that are helping out the organization and from there you know once somebody gets through that part of the screening process we give them access to a number of our different types of resources whether that's inviting them to our slack channel making sure that they have access to our resources page which has you know all sorts of things ranging from like how to write a campaign plan to like how do you file for office in your specific state? Right now, I believe we have about 10 states covered on those guides. We'll probably have all 50 states up uh, in the next three or four weeks in terms of giving people instructions on like how they can file in their specific states. And then in addition to that, they get put into a queue so that one of our state leads can reach out to them. And so our state leads are high-level political operatives that specifically, you know, work in a particular state. Usually they have some sort of statewide experience or have worked for a presidential campaign in that particular state. And those folks are sort of the first political operative that a lot of our candidates talk to. The purpose of that is coaching, right? So our state lead, once somebody comes in from their state, we'll reach out to them. They'll talk to them a little bit what they're, what they're thinking about running for, sort of the things that they've done to date. And then our state lead will help coach them through sort of like the next parts of the process. That's the process that we've got right now for a majority of our candidates. Once somebody has come in through that process, then they then become eligible for an endorsement. We are doing endorsements now on a rolling basis. I would say about once a month through the primaries in 2018, we'll be rolling out like another set of endorsements. We rolled out our last group late last month. We'll be doing our next grouping in a week or two. And right now we're in the process of vetting those folks. So that's where we are sort of in terms of how we support candidates, and then also the process for endorsement. You mentioned earlier that your initial target when you launched was hoping to get, you know, a thousand people to sign up, and you've actually had 11,000 people. So that's definitely far exceeded your original expectations. You also have said that 
you've endorsed 80 candidates and you will continue to endorse on a rolling basis. Do you have a target number of endorsements and candidates that you're looking to run for 2017? Or is it still kind of as it comes on a rolling basis, there is no real target number? Not for 2017 specifically. 2018, we'd like to have about 50,000 people who signed up to run for office. And by the 2018 election, we'd like to have our endorsement numbers be in the high hundreds, low thousands, I would say. That's awesome. I mean, I think that would be incredible to get that much new talent into the political field. I mean, as a democracy, it's really fascinating how we want people to participate, but only to an extent, and we still make it very difficult to either run for office or even to vote. Having election day on, you know, in the middle of the week is not a way to incentivize participation. So I think that's really great that you guys are really have ambitious goals, and it seems like you guys are really executing on that as well. Yeah, and I think one of the things that I've been hearing a lot about these days is that there is a lot of excitement about the number of candidates that are running for office right now. And there's a lot of trepidation and people are, I think, a little bit scared that there's just so many folks running in primaries right now. You know, a number of incumbents are probably facing their first opponent that they've had in years and years, if not decades. The thing that we're here to do and that really informs our vision is that like, especially, you know, in the short term, We believe the more good, young, diverse, progressive folks running for down-ballot office, having voter contact-driven campaigns, the better it will be up and down the ticket in 2018 and in 2020 as well. I would agree with that. I guess a question that I would have for you is you're working with candidates that are under 40. You're looking for diverse candidates that are progressive, as you say, but are there any sort of policy platforms that you require? Or is there like a certain ideology that you look for in candidates? Are they all Democrats? How does that work exactly? Sure. So we understand that being a progressive is different, you know, in every state. We do not have any sort of like specific policy platforms that we ensure that folks will abide by. However, we do have a series of value statements which are sort of pretty foundational if you're a Democrat or a progressive. So if you commit to those values, we basically expect candidates to commit to those value statements. We won't make an endorsement unless they do commit to those value statements. And they're pretty straightforward, a, a commitment to eliminate, reducing and eliminating income inequality, a commitment to racial justice, a commitment to women's rights, especially around reproductive health, LGBTQ rights and equality, believing in climate change. If you are a Democrat or a progressive, that should be particularly controversial and should be pretty straightforward. Additionally, at this point, we are only working with folks who identify as Democrats. That is sometimes a little bit challenging at the local level, where a number of offices are nonpartisan. And so what we do when we ask folks, when they fill out like our candidate endorsement uh, application, we ask folks to commit to us that they are indeed Democrats. And if they do, you know, run for another office that they run, that isn't nonpartisan, that they would be running as a Democrat. At this point, we're not working with folks who identify as independents or other political parties. That isn't to say that folks who do those things, there's not value in those candidates and there's not value in doing that. What it is to say specifically for us is that we've made a specific decision 
that we want to support and recruit for building a democratic bench. So say someone was interested in helping out, getting involved in your organization, but they... And so if you are interested, you can go to runforsomething.net and sign up as a volunteer. All of our screening calls that we do, those one-on-one screening calls are also done by volunteers. And so if you're interested in specifically talking to candidates and getting to learn a little bit more about them and you want to be like super inspired, that's also... You know, that's also a really great way of getting involved. We also have, you know, we're also like constantly recruiting for a number of different projects that we're working on on an ongoing basis. But what I would say is if you're interested in getting to know some like really incredible people at the local level, or if you're interested, you know, in potentially helping those folks by either making phone calls, knocking doors, sending text messages, you can go to our website, runforsomething.net and sign up as a volunteer. Awesome. My last question today has to do with other organizations that are similar to you, groups like Emily's List or Run for America or Definitely Someday. There's a lot of organizations, the Arena is another one, that are trying to recruit young progressive candidates. Do you have partnerships with them? Are you working with them? Can you talk a little bit about that? Anyone who's willing to work with us, we're interested in partnering. So our model is like really predicated on making sure that we're being supportive of the infrastructure that exists out there and only building new things when it's needed. We're not interested in reinventing the wheel. Emily's List does, as you mentioned, does really incredible work. So so does Emerge America. The Arena also does good work. What we're interested in doing and one of the things that's sort of like at the center of our model is being a clearinghouse for candidates to get access to resources across the progressive space. So as a matter of fact, we do have partnership, you know, we have a partnership with Emily's List, a number of the other organizations that you mentioned to make sure that our candidates are aware of the things that they're doing and can, you know, in some cases get easier access to some of those resources. So other organizations are the Progressive Campaign Change Committee, a number of others, you could probably name a lot of national organizations. We've probably either spoken with them to start the conversation about a partnership or we already have one with them. Cool. So folks who are listening, if you've ever thought about running for a local elected office, go check out runforsomething.net. Ross, thanks so much for coming on. I, I really enjoyed talking with you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Again, we hope you'll take a look at our newly released strategic plan and continue the conversation with us on Twitter. You can find me at Nathan H. Rubin, Jordan at Jordan Val Allen, and Ross Rocchetto at Ross Mo Rock. Take care. Stay tuned for our next episode.